Thank you, Josh and Amy, just for that beautiful time of worship. It is such a privilege to get to be with you again this morning. I, as some of us are now meeting in person, I want you to know at home that we dearly miss you. That is not the same without you, and we still just long for that day when we can all be together again as one large church family worshiping God together. Um, this morning, we are once again in 1 Corinthians as we continue our sermon series titled Undivided. We have learned so far a little bit about the state of the Corinthians. Um, they were a bit of a mess um, when Paul wrote this letter to them. Some of the problems that the church of Corinth was experiencing were things like quarreling, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and the list goes on. Yeah, so if you think the church in Portland is a mess, remember the Corinthians. <laughs> remember the Corinthians, yeah. right. Um, now, in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul addresses the first of these many problems that we see in Corinth, and it's their quarreling. And he moves to the subject of unity and division, which should hit home for us, right? I mean, honestly, how many of you have lived a conflict-free week this week? Anyone? And don't forget your time on social media or behind the wheel of the car. But in all honesty, folks, this week as I was sitting in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru watching two dudes yell at each other about who gets to go first, I was reminded that because of sin, sometimes we're better at war than we are at peace. And sometimes we're better at division than we are at unity. Mm -hmm. One of our favorite pastors often says the DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin makes us think, I want to be recognized. I want to claim. I want to be right. And sometimes it makes us go, I just want my chicken sandwich before the other guy. But underlying all sin is this desire to be our own king and for our will to be done. But friends, in addition to sin, one of our favorite authors points out that we actually have a strong basis for division, political differences, economic differences, different experiences with injustice. And the reality is, friends, that we live in a world that really is trying to pull us apart. Young from old, rich from poor, parents from children. Friends, even the internet and social media is designed in a way to put division between us. Now, I don't do this often, but if you haven't seen the documentary Social Dilemma, I'd highly recommend it. But friends, with all those factors together pulling us to divide, it begs the question, what has the power to protect us as the body of Christ from the danger and the damage of division? What has the power to give us unity? And that is what our passage is about this morning. So if you will open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. Um, go ahead and turn there. And as you are doing so, I'm going to go ahead and just pray for us this morning. God, uh, you are so good and you're so faithful. And it is a privilege to get to be your children. I just thank you for how you have given us your word. I thank you that it is breathed out by you and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped 
for every good work that you have given us. I just ask that you um, fill our homes with your spirit, fill this place with your spirit and just speak to us, speak to our hearts, Lord, change us, conform us into the image of your son so that we can become more like him and that we can reflect him to this world. We, We just love you. We welcome you. We invite you to come. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know any know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But friends, I would say just after spending time in this text this week, this is one of the most challenging texts in all of scripture. And if it doesn't challenge you, it should. But as we unpack this text, it answers three questions for us that we're going we're gonna to look at today. What? One is, what are we to be united in? Mm-hmm. Two, what happens when we're not united? And three, what are we united for? So first, what are we united in? Um, Now, the church in Corinth had been founded a few years before Paul writes this letter, and members of the church were used to picking their favorite church leader, as in Corinth, it was a city known for its public speakers. And the result was this destructive divisiveness that we see in this passage. And like Paul mentioned earlier, you know, our, our sin makes us really good at division. That's what comes natural to us, to, to pick a side and to dig in our heels or, you know, to come up, come out on top. So we shouldn't be shocked with what we see here in the church of Corinth because sadly it's familiar to us. And maybe it's not picking our favorite church leader that divides us. Although I am partial to this church leader over here. <laughs> but it's your political persuasion, or it's, it's whether or not masks are essential, or it's the worship music, or it's the pastor, whatever it may be. And right off the bat, we see in verse 10, the Apostle Paul appealed to the churches in Corinth. And he appeals to them, not on his own apostolic authority that he has, but he appeals to them in Jesus's name. It's like he's playing the trump card here. So he says, please, guys, in Jesus's name, don't be divided. Keep unity. It's that important. But we have to ask, unity in what? We can talk about the importance of unity all day long, 
But what is it that has the power to unify us? What is it that makes this place, this church, not a place of disunity and division, but a place of extraordinary love and extraordinary grace? What does the Apostle Paul mean in verse 10 when he says, be united in the same mind? And the answer is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are a people who know his deep love, that he would send his own son to enter into our pain, to enter into our world, and to die in our place for our sin, and then conquer death in resurrection. And he did this so that you and I may live. We are a people who have experienced his extravagant love and his grace and forgiveness. And that message of hope and life and of peace is what brings us together. It's what unites us. It's our most precious possession as the church. And the gospel alone is the only thing that has the power to pull us away from our selfishness, from our self-absorption, Uh, from wanting to look just at our own perspective and not see our neighbor. And it has the power to pull us away and into the beauty of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. There is nothing that is more needed, nothing that's more essential, or nothing that is more powerful. And Paul is saying in this passage that the gospel should be more important to us than anything else We should have one mind in this and guard against anything else that would divide us. We should be like, oh, you love Jesus? The actual risen Jesus? The real Jesus? My personal Savior? Oh, we're together. You're my people. You're my person. Oh, you like to dance and play a tambourine and worship that way? Okay, well, that's not my thing, but I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. When we lose unity within the church... It is usually because something has become more important to us than the risen Jesus. Now, I want to make a distinction here because Paul is referring to unity, but he's not referring to uniformity, thinking the same way about nearly all issues. So when we know this because in future passages of this letter, he really embraces the diversity in the church. People have different callings, different gifts, different perspectives, and that that coming together is really beautiful and can challenge us. So, but the point isn't uniformity and agreeing on everything. The point is that we're unified in the gospel. And so there may be some over here that say, oh, I've got these three people and we agree with like 846 of the 847 like doctrinal issues. And then you may have some over here who are like, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. Like, we're united. We're, we have unity. And, oh, you don't believe Jesus was the son of God. Oh, he didn't die in your place. Oh, no problem. No worries. We're together. We're unified. Neither of those are unity in the gospel. It's not uniformity where we agree on everything, but it's also not anything goes on the other side. It's the message of hope that is found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And friends, when we truly are unified in the gospel, the world takes notice. Jesus speaks 
of the powerful witness of our love for one another when he says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciple in the way that you love one another. As one of our favorite pastors and authors, Paul Tripp says, our unity, our love has been ordained by our Lord to be one of the most powerful living arguments of the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our unity and our love should make the surrounding world wonder, how can these people get along this way? How can they love each other this way? Why are they so free of so much of what divides us? How can people of different nations, different cultures, different backgrounds enjoy this unity? The reason that we relate to one another in the way that we do should be because of the gospel. The reason we love the way that we do should be because of the gospel. The reason we show grace and forgive one another in the way that we do should be the gospel. The reason that we can love our neighbor and see them before ourselves is the gospel. All things begin and end with the gospel. It is our only hope. And really, we have nothing else. Beautiful. So friends, our, our second question this text answers is, what happens when we're not united? What happens when the gospel isn't central? And verses 11 and 12 give us a bit of a, a case study of what does happen. So read with me again, just real quickly, verses 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So before we unpack those verses, I do want to ask you one question. How many of you were a tattletale when you were a kid? meaning you told on your siblings or you told on other kids in your class. Now, if you're watching at home, you can just own it, raise your hand. No one will be the smarter. No one will have any idea. But as parents, like a lot of parents, we try to tell our kids, hey, don't, don't be a tattletale. And for most of our kids, they haven't really had an issue with it. But our youngest son, David, who just turned five, is a prolific tattletale. And I mean, he doesn't just tell on his siblings and classmates. He shouts it like, mom, dad, Caleb stole the brownies again. And he repeats it and repeats it and repeats it until we do something. Now, I do need to make a bit of a parental confession. As much as I, I'm trying to train him not to be a tattletale, as the father of six kids, it's kind of helpful. It's like the best surveillance system you could imagine. But what we see here in verse 11 is a little bit like that. Chloe, who we don't know that much about, Chloe's people are going to Paul and saying, hey, look what the church in Corinth is doing. And the first thing we see is that when they were not united in the gospel, and what was happening in Corinth is they begin to quarrel. And they're quarreling about issues that are secondary to the gospel. For them, it was, it was baptism. But friends, when the gospel, we're united in the gospel, when the gospel is central to us, those secondary issues, even if we disagree on them, 
never come to the place where they surpass the gospel and lead to division. And it's not that those issues aren't important. It's not that those issues aren't important to discuss and maybe even disagree about. I love to wrestle with those issues. But those issues are secondary to the gospel. So when we do disagree on them, we disagree from a posture of humility. We disagree from a place of being committed to the unity of the body. We disagree in a place where we're committed to not breaking relationship or severing the bond of unity that's God's gift to us by his spirit. And friends, this is important. As Bethany mentioned, it's the heart of our Lord. But also our unity and not dividing or quarreling over issues that are second, secondary to the gospel impacts our gospel witness. Because if we're dividing, that gospel witness is diminished. I love how Sinclair Ferguson explains it. He says, the gospel is a message of reconciliation and peace with God. How can non-Christians be convinced that Christ reconciles us to God if we are not reconciled to each other? Now, friends, the second thing we see that happens when the gospel isn't central or we're not united in the gospel happens or is explained in verse 12. Let's read it again real quickly. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So let's set aside the I follow Christ crowd just for a moment. The second thing that happens for us, and we're seeing this with the church in Corinth, is that when the gospel isn't central, when we're not united in the gospel, we begin to attach ourselves for our identity, for our security, for our confidence to leaders in the church, to teachers. So in Corinth, it was Paul, Apollos, Cephas, but those names could easily be replaced with contemporary teachers in the church, who are great teachers, but like Keller and Piper and MacArthur. And I'll be honest, when I used to read this text, I was like, that is the weirdest thing to be dividing by teacher. But as we've gone through this last 10 months, it's become really clear that is something we do. And it's a temptation for me. In fact, one of my friends, another pastor, told me a story uh, about a friend of his and their meetings over the last 10 months. And he said early on in March, uh, as the pandemic hit, that he met with this friend. And of course, as they're meeting, they're, they're discussing um, one of the issues of the day that, that was controversial. And they're kind of wrestling with that together and uh, going through scripture, unpacking scripture. And then all of a sudden, that friend stops and says, well, I don't know about any of that. I'm just with Tim Keller on this one. And then he goes, you know, I'm kind of a Kellerite. So my friend says, a few months later, they get together again. Similar conversation, a different issue they're wrestling with together from Scripture. And this friend and him are, are talking, and, and they get near the end of the conversation, and the friend... I kid you not, says to my pastor friend, you know, I don't know about any of that that you're saying. I'm with John Piper on this one. 
you know I'm kind of a Piperite. To which my friend just he couldn't resist. He was like, what, what happened to Tim Keller? And he's like, well, Tim Keller's gone off the rails. I, I'm with John Piper on this one. Well, about a month ago, they got together again. And my friend said they were discussing another uh, controversial issue. And this friend of his, they were unpacking scripture, all of a sudden says, I don't know about any of that. I'm with John MacArthur on this one. To which, again, my friend couldn't resist. What about Tim Keller and John Piper's position on this issue? And he said, both those guys are off the rails. And you know what he said? You know, I'm kind of a... MacArthurite. No, he didn't. All right. (laughs) The story would have been too good if he would have said, I'm a MacArthurite. But you get the point, friends. When we're in disagreement on secondary issues, if the gospel isn't central, if we're not united in the gospel, we begin to attach our security, our identity, and our confidence to these leaders. Forgetting altogether that the gospel gives us all the identity, all the security, and all the confidence we'll ever need. But what about those I follow Christ folks? The I follow Christ crowd. Now, when I used to read this text, I used to think, oh, well, they got it right. I mean, obviously, Jesus is the right answer in Sunday school all the time. And they're saying they, they follow Christ. But if you notice in this passage, Paul doesn't let them off the hook. He doesn't give them a pass. He includes them. And so what we might be seeing here is actually the worst of spiritual name-dropping or spiritual one-upsmanship, which my wife is debating whether or not that's a word. (laughs) But what we're seeing here is that that the people in Corinth, some of them are using the name of Christ for their own personal agenda, right? To to paint a picture of spiritual superiority. And at first, you look at that and you're going like, man, they're using the name of Jesus for their own glory rather than his glory. How awful is that? Friends, we take a little while just to humble ourselves and think about how we live our lives. That temptation to use the things of God to make ourselves look superior, for people to agree with us for our own personal agenda, it's a temptation we all face. So where does that leave us in all this? Look at verse 17. It says, the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. So what does Paul do? How does he respond? Well, Paul asks three rhetorical questions that are really easy to answer. Follow with me again in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here the apostle Paul is just saying, He's making an appeal to logic. He's saying, like, your division is is illogical. It doesn't even make sense. Because of the gospel, we're united and we're one. There's no division that's necessary. Friends, I think one of the dangers is, is that when the gospel isn't central, we're not united. We forget this truth. We forget that our only hope is the work of Jesus on the cross. Not winning arguments, not aligning with the right people, not trying to strive to make ourselves look better spiritually. 
The gospel alone is our only hope. And the question for you and I today is, do we really believe that? And we must believe that, right? We must imbibe that in order to move forward with the mission of the church. Which brings us to that final question. What are we united for? What is the purpose of our unity? And if you'll look with me again at verse 17, it says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Eugene Peterson wrote it this way in the message, which I just love. God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, which is Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. I just love that. So Paul had a very clear mission to preach the gospel, and he had a deep desire to glorify Christ and not himself. He knew that what people needed and still need today is that self-denying proclamation of the gospel, which, which calls for nothing less than a death to ourself. And we must be united, not in what God didn't send us to do, but what he did send us to do. I don't know how many of you um, saw Pastor Ashley bring her puppy up here last week, which is the cutest. Asher is his name. He's kind of become like our church mascot or something like that. Um, But for those of you who have ever had a puppy before, have you ever noticed that they're not so good at taking instructions and understanding them? So when you point your finger to a little puppy and you say, like, go to your bed or go outside and potty, what do they tend to do? They look at your finger or they look at you. And they're just kind of wagging their tail like, what is it? What is it? And you're like, go to your bed or go outside and go potty. And they just look at your finger or look at you. And it's similar here in the story where here Paul is like, I'm sent to preach the gospel. And the people are looking at his finger or looking at him like, oh, Paul, oh, Paul, it's, oh, baptism. And he's like, no, look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at the mission that we've been called to, to share his love and his truth with this world. And it's kind of like a case in missing the point. And here Paul is saying the gospel is the point. And this mission of sharing the gospel with the world is our mission as the church. It's the mission of all gospel-centered churches. And that's one of the reasons I've been so thankful in this season for the Palau Association, who has done just a beautiful job uniting our Portland churches And it's just been beautiful to witness that. So the mission that Jesus gave us was not to sing songs a certain way or to argue about predestination or politics or how to govern the church. And those those are important things, but they're not why Christ sent us. They're not the most important thing. And he sent us to preach the gospel both in our words, what we proclaim with our mouths, and then how we live our lives as we proclaim 
his love and grace and truth to a hurting and broken world. And we must be united in order to carry out that mission effectively. So friends, um, I just want to end with a story. And it's a story some of you have heard. It's a story I've told. Um, but as I was praying through this message, this is an important story to tell. Uh, a couple years ago, my oldest daughter and I got to go to Rwanda. Uh, in our final day there, I think day 10, we got to go to church in a small village. Now, this small village at another church there was the site of one of the most horrific massacres during the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Thousands of people had fleed to take refuge in this church. And over the course of one night, those thousands of people were all massacred by their fellow Rwandan citizens. But I remember going to church that Sunday, and as I'm in church, I'm getting, I'm becoming overwhelmed as I watched the joy that people had as they worshiped. The pastor would stand up front and he'd shout out something that Jesus had done for them. He'd shout out the gospel and then immediately everyone would erupt and start dancing and hugging each other and celebrating. I thought, how beautiful that is. And I remember at that point, leaning over to one of my Rwandan friends and saying how uh, beautiful it was for me to witness that. But I'll never forget his response. He leaned back over and he said, Paul, you know that some of the people in this church participated in the killing of other people who are in this church or killing of their families. And I thought to myself, I don't think I could ever be reconciled or be in unity with someone who killed my family members. And then it hit me like a train. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do something like that. Friends, we can't look for unity horizontally where it's only given vertically. The gospel alone has that power to reconcile us to God, to reconcile us to each other, and to give us a unity that lasts for eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for challenging us today. Lord, I just pray that we will be changed, Lord, and that we can live reflecting your grace, reflecting your truth, reflecting your love in a way that unifies us so that we can be a people on mission, people taking your word and taking your love and taking your truth to this hurting and broken world. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you teach us. And thank you how you convict our hearts. We love you. We delight in being your children. It's in your name we pray. Amen.